I think this whole intersection really deals with not just race and the social determinants of health, but it also deals with just ethnicity, gender, disability status, and so many, many more, even political access, right? So I think that it is so very important to understand it is complex, but we have to break it down into very uh, palatable pieces so that we can then address it as a global experience. Welcome to the All Access Pass, a podcast brought to you by the Patient Access Collaborative, giving you an exclusive behind the scenes look at all things access in the ambulatory enterprise. Here, patient access leaders from academic health systems and industry experts share their expertise on hot topics in access, including best practices, process development, organizational dynamics, technological innovation, and patient experience. Welcome to the Patient Access Collaborative's uh, All Access uh, Pass to Access. That's our topic today. And specifically, we're going to be talking about diversity, equity, and inclusion in access. My name is Elizabeth Woodcock, and I am the founder and the executive director of the Patient Access Collaborative. And I am so excited to be virtually sitting down with our guests who are the co-leaders of the Patient Access Collaborative's cohort on diversity, equity, and inclusion. Allow me to introduce our guest really quick, Nick Ma, who is the Interim Senior Director of Access and Innovation at the University of Washington Medicine, Dr. Rizel McKinney, who is the Director of Access Technology at Vanderbilt University Medical Center, and we also have with us Praveena Mason, who is the Director of the Patient Access Contact Center at Cedars-Sinai. Well, y'all, I want to start with an interesting story. I had the occasion to really focus on a retreat with one major health system this summer. We were talking about access in the ambulatory setting and all the great work that a lot of our collaborative members are doing. And all day long, we were talking about, you know, the barriers and the challenges and the opportunities that all of us know about access. And one of the doctors at the back of the room raised his hand. He said, whoa, 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 I'm a scientist. I always start with defining the problem. And how can you even tell me that access is a problem? And it really struck me because I realized that many of us have a lack of evidence. And in my opinion, this disproportionately impacts those patients who may be our most vulnerable patients, those who are not serving well today. I even think about patient feedback surveys, for example, which is what this physician pointed out. And the mere fact that we're actually talking about patients mean they have made it into our system. In other words, we have possibly created, not intentionally, institutional inequity when it comes to ambulatory access. And I'm talking about the basics here, the paperwork. We like joke about it, but it's all in English and it's very, very long. You need a I don't know, collegiate, if not a doctoral education to get through some of our forms. Y'all know the drill. So I wanted to kind of start with framing our audience with that. You know, a lot of people ask us, I think, you know, how does diversity, equity, and inclusion even fit within ambulatory 
access. So I just wanted to really start with that fundamental question about the intersection of access and equity. And so, Rizel, I thought I'd start off from your perspective. Where do you see that? So thanks, Elizabeth. And I think that is a very interesting perspective. So I think, you know, as you pointed out, it it is a very complex uh, intersection in that, you know, it involves really ensuring that our patients, as we treat them as individuals, all have a fair and just opportunity as it relates to receiving health care, right? Some might describe that as privilege, you know, so when you think about the survey, there's is the, I guess, expectation that one, a patient has the necessary equipment to respond to the survey. So we may be missing out on those who don't have the privilege of having the technology to respond to the survey, although they may be within our health system. And I think this whole intersection really deals with not just race and the social determinants of health, but it also deals with just ethnicity, gender, disability status, and so many, many more, even political access, right? So I think that it is so very important to understand it is complex, but we have to break it down into very uh, palatable pieces so that we can then address it as a global experience. It's a really interesting perspective because not only is diversity, equity, and inclusion complex, but so is access. So you start to mix those two together and it really becomes very challenging. So Praveen, I know you're doing a lot of work at Cedars-Sinai as well as with the collaborative. So, you know, given the fact this is so complex and as Rizel really says, like, how do we make this more granular, tactical? Can you talk about an initiative that you've worked on at Cedar sinai that might be related to this intersection of access and equity? Yeah, so Rizal, I think you gave a really great description. Um, the intersection of the access and equity is a critical concept in healthcare and other sectors. And as we talk about you know, some initiatives at Cedars, uh, what we recognize in the patient contact center was a lack of knowledge regarding transgender patients and the um, education and knowledge around how to to appropriately support them and schedule them. Um, And so what we did was we contacted one of our wonderful physicians, Dr. Stephanie Tran, who her main objective is really to surround herself and um, wrap her arms around this population. And so we had her come and give a uh, lecture to our agents just around the different nomenclature, the verbiage, how to appropriately dress, and provided us with a PowerPoint and kind of a tool um, so that our agents had the um, necessary skills to properly address and and schedule these patients. And so from that, she, from her heart, has really developed a clinic that services uh, this particular population, as well as in her own department um, in primary care. But this has opened up the doors, I think, one for Cedar sinai but also the knowledge and tools and education that that you didn't people didn't know that they truly needed in order to um, properly address all walks of life. And so this has become a very prominent department um, at Cedar sinai And I believe and know true today that the community is really appreciated the efforts that have been put into this. It's really interesting you say that because on the surface, we're healthcare leaders. We know, like, you know, 
seeing all patients so important, but even illuminating opportunities and, you know, raising the voices of those who may not be able to raise themselves um, internally, I think is is so critical. And thanks for sharing that example, Pravina. You know, it's interesting, Nick, because I remember one of our conversations actually years ago during the midst of COVID is at the University of Washington, one of the things that y'all did that to me was so powerful was you started to look at the race, ethnicity, gender, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, a patients where they were receiving COVID vaccine and COVID testing. And you were iterating, evolving based on that data about where you could better serve patients through, you know, mobile clinics, for example. And, you know, to me, that was one of the first times that I'd really seen a health system lean into the data to be able to serve your patients better. And so I wondered if you could talk at the University of Washington Medicine, maybe about one of the initiatives that y'all have done as it relates to DEI and access. Yeah, thanks, Elizabeth. And that that experience during COVID really was a foundational experience for me within access and, and, and equity. And the, the key, you know, illuminating learning from that was to observe how if you're not intentional and deliberate about how care is accessed within your system, it is likely to be just inherently distributed inequitably. It is not first come, first serve is, is not equitable. And I think that we, we all probably understand that to some degree, but to see the, see it in the numbers, it's, it's, it's a really compelling story. So I've actually just in this past week been thinking about how do we pull forward those lessons? You know, the ultimately, just like every other health system in this country, there is a, there is a, a lack of capacity right now, right? We really uh, have a lot of demand from patients in the post-COVID world where they're coming back to healthcare and really trying to find, kind of restart their healthcare journeys. And it's difficult when we just simply don't have enough capacity to meet all patients. And that's a, that's a situation that's perfect for inequities to brew, right? Because it's only those who have more resources and more engagement or more time to engage with their healthcare journey that actually get the the limited care that we have to offer. So we've kind of been going back to the well and asking what what do the numbers tell us? How can we understand how different populations are being affected by our limited capacity and asking ourselves, what tools can we better put in place to help us understand as patients first interact with the health system or how do we understand who's not interacting with the health system to your point earlier about the survey and what types of outreach can we do? What type of engagement can we do? You know, one of the commitments of the of UW medicine is to improve the health of the public. And I think that that's a, it's a, it's a large charge and it's a challenging charge, but that really does involve engaging all of these communities within our, in our broader community as parts of their healthcare. So, you know, we don't have the answers right now, but we're trying to figure out what lessons have we learned how do we meet patients where they are, right? And recognize that they're not going to just come to us and the the more barriers we put up, um, the more inequities that we we cause. It's a really interesting perspective, Nick. And it's going back to what Rizel mentioned um, at the top, which is this idea of like, we don't even think about the tools as in a telephone or a pen or the fact that we can, you know, very easily speak English and read English and have access to a fax machine. I'm embarrassed to say that we still in healthcare, particularly in ambulatory access, run on faxes. And so this idea of the complex systems that require a tool, to your point, Nick, with the imbalance of supply and demand, we may actually be perpetuating inequity today. And 
so important for us to be as leaders talking about that. So, Rizel, I know that as the co-leader and really you were the inspiration for the cohort when we formed it in the Patient Access Collaborative, can you talk about some of the just, you know, some of these really important topics that you have had a chance to lead the group through? Yes. And thank you, Elizabeth. And I think it piggybacks on what Nick and what they've done at UW, and that is really understanding who our patients are. So one of the projects that we really worked on with what was an effort as the institution, particularly with our IT departments, is understanding our patients' race, ethnicity, and language, right? I think that as scientists, we are focused on outcomes. And the way we get to outcomes is we have to have the data to understand, you know, who are we servicing? And so by adding questions in our appointment scheduling process and our registration process of what is your ethnicity, what is your language, but more importantly, what is your preferred language and how would you like to be communicated with in terms of your healthcare? So we've worked in really making sure that we have identified that um, for our patients. And now we're working on the reverse of that and identifying our workforce who are speaking the same languages as our patients in an effort to marry those languages uh, of our patient and population with our uh, staff population. And so we worked with interpretive services, Ms. Hope Collins as our director of interpretive services here at Vanderbilt, to have an assessment to qualify our workforce to either read, write, or speak that language uh, so that the patients will understand if they're walking down the hall or if they need some assistance, they can visually um, identify someone who can speak to them in their language, particularly in a medical space. Just incredible. And I know the the acronym that we use and um, I was on the last call for the Collaborative's DEI cohort on SOGI, which is sexual orientation and gender identity. And really being able to share that work across our members, I think, has been very motivating to all of us as we've continued these discussions instead of working in pockets, which, as you know, that's exactly what the collaborative really strives to do, is to be able to share this important work. Um, Praveena, is there anything as we kind of sit there and talk about this that really stands out to you that, you know, was either an agenda item or something that was shared at one of our DEI cohort meetings that you just thought, I mean, this this is a real big surprise, either to you or maybe to other leaders that may be listening. Yeah, I think for me, because sometimes you, when you're working, you're kind of in your own silo and your own state. And so when um, the university, I believe it was Iowa or University of Utah, uh, we're talking about different prohibitions um, there and laws that are passed so that you can't provide the optimal health care for, for patients. So it was surprising that, you know, it isn't uh, where we would hope it would be, I think, around different states and um, throughout the nationally, I would say. And so it made me, one, have an appreciation, but also, two, we have a long way to go. We have a long way to go to ensure that, one, everybody gets the access that they deserve and need but also ensure that we're coming uh, from a place where everyone is one. And so that was surprising for me um, a little bit. And, I, you know, you know that it exists, but to hear 
um, how inequitable it is, is, you know, alarming. It's an alarming rate um, in a lot of different states. So, yeah, it's really interesting because it 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 it's almost like there's this intersection between access and community or public mm-hmm. health. Um, and I know that's something that Nick brought up too, is this idea of servicing the community. And I think as we continue to expand our horizons, if you will, as ambulatory access leaders, it really then becomes speaking for those who can't speak for themselves, who need access to our systems outside of just walking in through the emergency department and how how important it is for us to convey their voices. Nick, is there anything that when you think about some of the work either y'all have done or that has been shared that's just been that like aha moment for you or that might surprise other healthcare leaders? You know, I don't know if this is a surprise or not, but I think it's it's interesting to acknowledge and embrace the fact that that no one is no one has figured this out. And I think there are there are health systems that that maybe feel like they're not where they want to be and, and don't know where to start. And I think that that's something we've tried to really surface within the cohort is is a shared understanding that everyone's at a different place in the journey, but we're all on the journey together. And there are so many things that we can learn from each other about how we navigate these challenges. And I think in the cohort, we've done a great job of balancing these kind of broader philosophical uh, conversations and, and approaches with really pragmatic learnings about how you can actually drive some of these initiatives within your system, whether it's Pravina sharing about some of the um, efforts that they're doing at Cedars or, or Rizal talking about how they're collecting that data within the contact center. We had a really interesting conversation about interpreter services and the ways that we, um, different parts of the organization, interact with their interpreter services to increase access for those who don't speak English. And and I think it's the whole experience, I think, has been really, really interesting just to have that engagement from others and, and to share the experiences regardless of where they're at on their journey. I'll just piggyback, Nick, on that um, conversation about interpreter services because I had an aha moment during that conversation when, um, Praveen, I think it was your colleague, said the we've, of course, average handle time for our listeners, AHT, that's often a big performance metric for the contact center is how long the agent, the associate on the tele- in the contact center, the telephone operator, stays on the line with the patient. And there's a lot of sort of debate about whether that's a good performance metric, whether it should be short, whether it should be long, but the reality is it is a metric. And one of the uh, presentations shared that if we have a patient who does not speak English, there is typically those seconds or maybe even up to a minute where there's a confirmation even of the voice and what language am I speaking? And the agent is trying really to help that um, patient or caller. And naturally, that handle time is going to be longer for that phone call and that there was observed that if an agent felt pressured to have a lower handle time, that the better option would be to hang up that phone. And that was an aha moment for me is to even think about this, again, this hidden problem that we may be creating from some of the pressures related to management and efficiency. And again, our most vulnerable patients who are the ones who will be less service, because if it was me, I would call right back and demand to speak to a supervisor. 
but maybe not all patients would do that, all callers. So again, just that like small aha moment that um, leads to these very important, crucial conversations. Well, I wanted to see if y'all could give us like, Rizel, like what is that kind of impactful we want our listeners to really leave with when we talk about access and equity? Yes, thanks, Elizabeth. And I can't say enough thank you for uh, hosting this podcast and inviting us to participate. It's been very wonderful. I think that as leaders, we focus a lot on the outcomes of our patients. We look at the health inequities that we may sometime uh, present. But I think as leaders, we also need to focus inwardly at our own workforce and our own institutions and really ask ourselves, you know, historically, have we been viewed as an anti-racist organization? And how do we overcome that narrative to be a more inclusive organization? And do we have the policies and the procedures in place to allow our uh, workforce to be that inclusive and welcoming uh, voice and face for our patients? Excellent. Praveena? Yeah, everything Rizel said was beautiful. Um, I just want to let you know, remind everyone that a, the DEI initiative with all of our organizations should be an ongoing and evolving process for sure. I think regularly reassessing the needs and concerns of the patient populations, they change. They always change. So staying informed about um, any emerging current and emerging DEI issues in healthcare is crucial to definitely maintaining an inclusive and equitable patient contact center and organization and healthcare system in general. And so it is not only kind of our mission and visions of all of our organizations, but it is how we carry it out within, as Rizal stated. Uh, we definitely have to take a, a good look in the mirror to say, do, what do we have in place? What do we need to change? And I think in, in addition to that, the community partnerships have a huge impact on that. So collaborating with community organizations and agencies to help address the different social determinants of health and, you know, such as housing and food security and transportation barriers, age-related equity, racial and ethnic, you know, ethnic equity, all of those different things play a role in our day-to-day operations. So it's ever-evolving, you know, stay the course and um, continually reassess because it's going to continue to change, but it's needed. Wow, Praveena, you said it well. Thank you so much. Nick, any last words about this important topic? You know, kind of inspired by by Rizal and Prabhu's words. I think ultimately, like as as access leaders, it's we have a voice, and it's really important to use our voice in service of those patients and and those not yet patients that we're trying to reach. And it's also our role as leaders to elevate the voices of of everyone around us. Because ultimately, we talk about this that, that access is not something that's the responsibility of just the access team or access leaderships to 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 improve. It's it takes literally everyone within a health system, and I think that's true for equity as well. We we literally all have to work together to to improve things. And I think that it's our our job to to use our voices and and those around us to to understand that that we have to work together to solve. Wonderful. Y'all have all been such an inspiration to me, as I'm sure you have been to our listeners today. I want to thank Nick Ma, the Interim Senior Director of Access and Innovation for UW Medicine, Rizel McKinney, the Director of Access Technology for Vanderbilt University Medical Center, and Praveena Mason, the Director of Patient Access Contact Center at Cedars-Sinai. Thanks to everyone, and thanks for listening. Take care. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Patient Access Collaborative All Access Pass podcast. 
The conversation doesn't end here. Visit the Patient Access Collaborative for more content on our blog at www.patientaccesscollaborative.net or our LinkedIn page. Members can access a massive library of resources, including past webinars, benchmarks, directories, and more. Not a member but interested in these resources and joining a group of 3,000 patient access leaders? Join the Patient Access Collaborative today. Find real solutions to the challenges in your daily work by sharing ideas, contacts, and best practices with industry leaders in the Patient Access Collaborative. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe and leave a review where you listen to the podcast. Until next time.